Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we will cover The Stand, book one, chapters one through four, and all the front material. Let's start the show! A lab accident and a malfunctioning security system allow a soldier and his family to escape a base, but not before they are infected with a deadly virus. They make their way to Texas, where the soldier crashes into a gas station, where Stu Redman is able to save his friends from a deadly explosion. Across the country in Maine, Franny Goldsmith tells her boyfriend that she is pregnant, and both aren't sure what to do next. Back in Texas, the virus quickly spreads across the small town and draws the attention of the federal government. Back in California, Starkey, a high-ranking army officer, sees what happened at ground zero of the virus through security cameras and reflects on the deadliness of Project Blue. Jay, we're about to tackle possibly Stephen King's other magnum opus other than The Dark Tower. Yep. The stand is probably considered by most of his fans to be that magnum opus because as we've noted before, there's not a perfect Venn diagram of Stephen King fans and Dark Tower fans. In fact, Stephen King has often said that there's a, a fairly big disconnect between those who consider themselves huge Stephen King fans and have read all of his books, but have somehow missed the Dark Tower, mm-hmm. which is the position I was in for the longest time. So, But here we are tackling the stand finally after all these years doing the podcast. Yeah, and I could not be more excited. I am so jazzed to get into this book. And this first section that we're covering in this episode, it's just great. I love it already. Like I'm I'm already like falling in love with this book again. And I'm so happy that we're doing it in the podcast. Excellent. Well, let's talk a little bit about the publication of this book. The Stand was King's fourth novel. It was published in 1978 and it came after Carrie, Salem's Lot, and The Shining. Although King also published Rage before it, but that was under the pen name of Richard Bachman. Yeah, and who knows who that is? Yeah, nobody, definitely not in this 1978, nobody knew. The original book was set in 1980, but as we'll see, King is a fan of tweaking this book. Um, And when the paperback came out, that was 1980, and it already pushed the date forward. So the story is set in 1985 in the paperback. Oh, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's uh, the first time that he set about making some changes to this book. And one thing that both you and I have talked about is the cover of the stand. I call it the spy versus spy image because mm-hmm. it reminds me of the old Mad Magazine gag with the black spy and the white spy always getting at each other. And there's these two sort of abstract figures on the cover representing good and evil, I suppose. And the cover illustrator is John Kaya. Mm. But it's a very striking image. Yeah, I've always been a fan of that image. And there was even a period of time when I considered getting that as a tattoo. Ooh. But everyone would have said, what's with the spy versus spy tattoo, Jay? Yeah. I mean, that wasn't my main consideration. Mostly it was, am I still going to be a fan of Stephen King 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Turns out I am. In fact, I'm doing a podcast about his books. So maybe it wouldn't have been such a bad idea. But hey, I never did get that tattoo. Ah. So in 1990, 12 years after The Stand originally came out, A version called The Stand, complete and uncut, added almost 400 pages that were originally cut from the book. 
And this edition also added illustrations by Bernie Wrightson, who not only did the illustrations for Cycle of the Werewolf, but also the Dark Tower-related Wolves of the Kala. In fact, it's not even related. It is the Dark Tower. It is, in fact, a Dark Tower (laughs) book. And I continue to butcher Kala, as I mentioned. (laughs) And, you know, the big obvious change that happened was that the time frame for the book was also pushed up into the 90s, so that the book, which originally was set in the 1980s, is now set in the 1990s. And this is the version we're going to be reading for this podcast. Yeah. So, Jay, as you may have remembered, there is a somewhat famous adaptation of this book. Never in movies as of yet. It's just too long. It just doesn't make sense for there to be a movie about The Stand. I know at one point they had talked about maybe doing two movies or a trilogy or a series of movies. But all that we have so far is the ABC miniseries that came out in the 90s. What do you mean it's too long? They were able to make an eight book Dark Tower series into one 90 minute movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it was perfect. (laughs) Exquisite. (laughs) Exquisite, if you will. It left no questions whatsoever. It made me so happy to see that movie and to just know that it exists thrills me with, with each passing day. Um, so some of us have fond remembrances of the ABC miniseries, or at least remembrances of them, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, at the time I was super excited. There has also been a couple other adaptations. One is the Marvel Comics adaptation. So like they did with the Dark Tower, they also got the rights to do the stand in comics form. I remember reading some of it, but I don't think I read the whole series from beginning to end. I want to say it's like 30 or 40 comic book floppies and eventually collected into a trade paperback. And of course, it's been announced that there will be a CBS All Access Dark Tower series coming soon. Mm. So I have not heard a date other than potentially late 2020 or early 2021. So yeah, I'm not going to hold my breath, but I am excited for whenever it comes out. Yeah, I will definitely watch it. Yes. So Jay, we're in a little bit of a different spot with this book. When we started this podcast, I had read one or two books of the Dark Tower and not the rest of it. So I was a relative newcomer. So I had a little Mm -hmm. bit of knowledge of what was going on, but not much. But this is a book that I have read multiple times. I read the original version when it came out a couple times. I know for a fact when the 1990 Complete and Uncut version came out, I was at Walden Books the day that it was published, and I bought it at the mall. And I brought it home and started reading it that day. And I bet I read it in a day or two, if if not that, just because I was so excited to read it. And wow. I've, read, I've read that version multiple times as well. It's probably been a good 10 years since I've read it again, but I know this book fairly well um, and remember it fondly. And for a long time, probably up until I got into grad school, whenever anyone asked me what my favorite book was, I would tell them The Stand by Stephen King. And to just kind of reflect off of your comment there, yes, we're we're sort of reversing roles here. You're the one uh, on the show who has read the book multiple times. You know it really, really well. Uh, and now I'm the one who's only read it once. And I read it in 1991. It was the complete and uncut edition that we're discussing again now. Uh, but I just read it the one time. Hmm. And... I haven't read it since. So it's been a good long time since I've cracked open this book. Um, I remember enjoying it. I remember really taking my time with it. I, I spent weeks reading this book. And I remember a lot of the details, but it's also a little bit fuzzy in the 
little nooks and crannies of this story. Um, and as I've been getting back into it for this section of the, uh, for this episode, a lot of like really nice memories are coming back, a little bit of nostalgia. And somewhere along the way, there was a, a reprint that came out of the hardcover. And I picked that up just to have it as a kind of keepsake because this mm. book meant a lot to me in terms of me getting to know Stephen King as an author and catching up with all of his published works at the time. I've never actually read that copy of the book <laughs> that I probably spent more than $40 on. But 20 years ago? 20, yeah, 20 years ago. Now, you have told me, though, that you watch the miniseries about once a year, and you have both the VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray of that, though, right? Also the Laserdisc, and I wear denim jeans and a denim jacket every time I watch it. Well, yeah, I mean, you are a fashionista, so. <laughs> I also wear that every day, so. Yeah, well, it goes, it goes pretty well with your mullet. And my tattoo. <laughs> Yeah, so as you can tell, Jay and I are super jazzed about this book. Um, it's just been sort of uh, our white whale out there, right? Like after The Dark Tower, you and I had talked about, well, we want to do The Stand, we want to do The Stand, we want to do The Stand, and it took us a couple years to buckle down and get to it, and here we are, and we're very excited. Yep. All right, so Jay, we've mentioned that there are two versions of this book, and that we're reading the expanded version, and I think a lot of King's readers and critics and non-King readers are probably like, wait, why did he put out another version of this? Especially in 1990, when there wasn't this cultural need to put out prequels, to put out sequels, to continue book series over and over again. Um, to put out director's editions. And yeah, and uncut versions and the final cut. Like, this is a totally new thing. And King realized that and tried to stop the critics before they could give him a hard time. Yep. Um, and really, in part of the pre-story materials, there's two prefaces, one that he says to be read before the purchase and the one to be read after the purchase as a way of saying, hey, here's what you're buying and here's what you're getting into. And it really starts to explain why he did this and, and what exactly this is. So should we talk about that a little bit? Sure. The first preface is the to be read before purchase, as you mentioned. And reading through it, he basically, in in not too many words, says, this is not a new book. Please don't be confused. And if you've already read The Stand and you liked it and you're okay with you know, the, the version you read, that's cool with me. Put this book back on the shelf and buy whatever else you're going to buy here at the, the bookstore. But don't buy this. <laughs> and you know he's trying to cut you off at the pass. Like Literally, don't even get yourself into the point, to the point where you need to come back to the store and return it. Just stop now. And I appreciate that. I And like you said, he was trying to ward off the critics a little bit, but he, I think he was also trying to do a service to his fans. And it made me wonder, would he have done this, would he have said this, if he were doing this today? Hmm. And I think not, because now there are a million websites and fan sites and YouTube channels and everything that talk about everything that everybody's doing all the time. So it feels like if you were a Stephen King fan and you were curious about his next publication, you'd probably know that Stephen King's going to redo or republish with extra pages a book that he did already. Yeah. And you'd know all about it. You'd understand what was going on and it wouldn't be a surprise. But that's today. Everybody kind of is just obsessed with things that they're obsessed with. 
But in 1990, the internet wasn't anything like it is today. There certainly wasn't constant coverage. And like you said, people weren't doing director's cuts and stuff on a regular basis to even have the idea for us to be used to it or, right. or know what that could even mean. So I think it's a good thing. It does just feel of so far of what I've reread of the book, that feels like the most dated thing so far. <laughs> like he should have updated that part of the book a little bit. Right. But there you go. Yeah. And then part two, which he says is to be read after the purchase, really gets into the explanation of what he did. And he talks that not only is this not an original book and it not being new, but really the reason for it is to make the story richer. Um, mm -hmm. that he feels that you're not going to get a different book here. There's nothing that's going to change from one edition to the next. Characters are going to act in the same way. The story still hits the same beats. But he's hoping that if you like the world that he created, if you like the characters that he created, if you, if you like the situations, the way that he's expanded them, and I should say the way he's expanded, the way he's put material back in that expands all of those things is going to make for a fuller reading experience for you. Right. When he writes that, he also says that he writes for only two reasons, to please myself and to please others. And so he almost seems to be saying, I'm doing this as a service to you because I know that this book is a fan favorite. And because I'm trying to please myself, this is what I originally wrote. I know there's good stuff in there. And I know that people love this book. So I'm going to give them things that they're going to like. I found that interesting as well, because even with the additions, he is saying that I didn't just add all 400 pages back in. I was still a little bit of an editor and didn't put everything that was in. There are still pieces that didn't work, but I did add things that I thought would make the story richer. Yeah. He says that he did leave some things on the cutting room floor because he felt that they, they should remain there. And he also kind of touched almost every page of this, just like he did with the gunslinger. He rewrote or tweaked lots of very little things. Like, like why did he even bother, you know, kind of level of yeah. things to, really big, important things, just adding content in, all in service of his fans. If if you liked the stand the first time and you want more of it, here's more of it. And along the way, I'm going to try to make it an even better version of what it was before. But I'm not going to change things that potentially would change the story dramatically that maybe critics didn't like or readers didn't like. Um, mm -hmm. He didn't feel the need to go that far. I think what he did was still took his original version of the story that he envisioned and just sort of brought it up to date and added what he thought needed to be added. But, you know, I, I get this feeling like he wasn't like George Lucas going in and saying, oh, I want to change the way Han Solo acts here because people realize he's a good guy and I don't want him to seem like a bad guy. So I'm going to let Greedo shoot first. Not those types of changes. He, everything remains true to the, his story and vision. Right. For good and bad. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, let's get into the story, Jay. Enough uh, beating around the bush. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So this is a new book, obviously. And that means we're going to start meeting some new characters. And in this first portion of the book that we're covering, where we go through chapter four of part one, we meet four main characters. The first character we meet is in the prologue, and that's Charles Campion. And Charles Campion is patient zero. He is the one who gets this sickness and then manages to take it out into the general population. It's yep. because of him that everybody gets sick. And it's really interesting to meet him the way that we do. 
He's kind of like that introductory character that George R. R. Martin likes to put at the beginning of each of his books in A Song of Ice and Fire. And you don't know who this character is yet. You don't know how long this character is going to be around. You just assume that if this is the first person you meet, it feels like typically that's your protagonist, right? So mm. here's, here's Charles Campion. He just got sick and he's making a run for it. Is he going to make it? Am I supposed to root for him? What's going to happen? And it turns out he's a really selfish jerk and he doesn't follow protocols and he manages to get sick and then go out into the world. And before we get to the end of chapter four, he's dead. Yep. So the first character we meet is basically the first character to die. And that's just like what George R. R. Martin does. Yeah. And it's the way he puts it is he wants to protect his family. Mm -hmm. So he grabs his wife, he wakes up his daughter, gets him out of bed, and it's disastrous. All three of them are dead by the end of chapter one. Um, yep. So in doing what he thinks is right, he's brought about the destruction of his family. So to your point, where's the characters that we are going to meet there? We're going to stick around and we move into chapter one and we meet, I think it's five guys sitting around at a gas station. But mm -hmm. we're sort of given the perspective of a man named Stu Redman, who's, we're told, is the quietest one of the bunch. And we get a lot of his story, um, how he grew up poor, um, how he had a brother that died of a flu, how his mom died of breast cancer, how he's, you know, had a hard time working in the calculator factory in town that's limiting his hours. And, um, and yet there's this little bit of heroism to him because he sees the car that Charles Campion's driving coming and he realizes even at its slow motion, 15 mile an hour, if it hits the gas tanks, there's gonna be yeah. a big explosion. And he's the one who's, who, who sees it coming and then takes the action to hit the cutoff switch. And Stu seems like maybe he will be an important character. We don't know. Um, but throughout chapter one, it's told from his perspective. And by the end of the section that we've read, we also learn that he from the government does not seem to be affected by the flu so far. You know, it's interesting in the, the scene when we meet all the guys who are hanging out at the gas station, including Stu, for some reason, the mental picture that I, I had in my mind of these guys hanging out is that they were outside, like sitting in mm. front of the gas station on a, on a bench or something like that, or maybe even closer to the road, you know, someplace with some shade or whatever. But they weren't inside. So when Stu just stands up and turns off the pumps, I was like, wait a second. They're not outside at all. It, I totally reset my picture of that scene. And I don't know why I thought they were outside. Maybe I was thinking of the miniseries because I kind of feel like they were all sitting outside then too. Yeah. But like when I think of like the little quickie mart type places in gas stations, I don't, it doesn't feel like there's a place to hang out in those. Right. They're, all, they're always very small and they're crowded with shelves of, of stuff. And, you know, where would you sit? You know, where would four guys just hang out? Yeah. So I always just assume that they're outside. Anyway, <laughs> I just, I just realized I had it totally wrong <laughs> in my imagination. All right. So we move on to chapter two and the characters we meet there are, Franny Goldsmith and her poet boyfriend. Mm, yes, and, a practicing poet. Yes, a practicing poet. And I just want to say that 
we spent a lot of time in talking about the Dark Tower and how King seemed to have a problem making Susanna a fully rich character, that he didn't spend enough time with her and make her fully realized and make her somebody that we, although we cared about her a lot, we just didn't get a good sense of her interior motivations. Mm -hmm. We talked about that a lot. And in one chapter with Franny, he seems to be able to do all of that. Like she yeah. seems like a, like just this full character. She has these motivations and she's not perfect or idealized in any way. She realized that at times she's being a jerk to her boyfriend and that she is confused about situations. She doesn't know always the right thing to do. And that's all brought together very nicely in this one chapter. And I just yeah. thought, wow, good job, King. I agree. And I also wanted to just mention here that the first time I read this book, I wasn't a big fan of Franny Goldsmith's character. And I'm sure that it, it has a lot to do with the fact that I am all these years older myself mm. and I just have a different perspective on life. And But she just kind of, to me, just wasn't appealing. It was like she was kind of the quote unquote girl who was pregnant and that's her character. But rereading it now, I realize to what you just said, there's so much more to her than that. The fact that she got pregnant means that everything in her life is about to change. As I was rereading this within like five pages of Franny's chapter, I was like, you know what? I actually like Franny a lot. She's a great character. The other great thing is the other character we meet in this chapter is her boyfriend, Jess. Mm -hmm. And here's a rare instance of a writer character that King does not necessarily want us to relate to and is not a stand-in for King. Or if he is a stand-in for King, King is playing with it a little bit because here's a guy who as a poet he's standing on the edge of the pier and he's making sure he poses in such a way that he looks like he's pondering the great questions of life mm -hmm. as he looks out across the atlantic ocean and later on he does more pretentious things so here's a writer that again is is taking the brunt of king's uh sarcasm here yes <laughs> yeah definitely uh get the feeling we're not supposed to like jess or jesse I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Yeah. She calls him Jess at one point, so we'll go with that. Yeah. Chapter three gives us a Salem's Lot type chapter where we get sort of a quick look around the town of Arnett, Texas, where mm. Stu Redmond's from and, and some of the other folks. And we get to see a, a man who started to cough and he's upset with his wife and he has got to watch his kids. And then we get this scene of the wife babysitting for a couple dollars because she's poor and she's coughing as well and then we get sheriff joe bob who's roaming around the county infecting <laughs> people and telling the people at the gas station hey you got to be careful of yourself because those guys that you uh who, who crashed in the gas station the other day they're sick and got the attention of the feds and so we get this nice little let's bounce around and see what's happening and it also gets us to show how this flu is starting to pass from person to person and getting people sick. Yeah, it's very much like those town chapters in Salem's Lot and like those kind of interstitial chapters in Wizard and Glass, mm. where where we recede a little bit to just the perspective of the narrator and we kind of jump from character to character. But I think the best parallel is the one you just mentioned, and that is this is a communicable disease and it spreads by going from person to person so it makes sense for us to sort of have a virus eye view here <laughs> yeah. it's almost like 
the character of chapter three isn't the town, it's the virus. And I like that. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention is that this is a very soap opera feeling chapter as well. Mm. You know, it's it's the day-to-day domestic stuff. Like the the owner of the gas station is worried about it, the insurance going through and making sure he gets paid. And the 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 guy at work is worried about having to take care of his kids and the wife's worried about getting a few extra dollars here and there. So it's all that little stuff that really makes King a great writer, right? Like he's not just focused on, and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It goes back to that preface where he says, I'm trying to make the story richer. And this, these are the types of things that make it richer because these characters mean something. They're not just, Oh, this guy's going to get sick and die. Or this is somebody who's moving a disease from one person to the other. All these things make sense because these characters seem real. It's also a form of foreshadowing by way of comparison. The problems of everybody's lives used to be stuff like insurance claims and Mm. are you going to get paid for babysitting and things like that. But if you get sick, those things suddenly become a lot less important. And if you get a disease that kills you in, uh, I don't know, a couple of hours or something like that, Suddenly, that type of thing is completely unimportant. But if we don't have that baseline, then the degree to which this sickness Im- impacts individuals and society won't be as meaningful. Hmm. Yep. So then the final chapter that we read for this section deals with Starkey, who is what seems to be a very high-level officer at the Army base. And we zoom in on him as he's sitting in a control room watching all these monitors mm-hmm. uh, showing the laboratory where. We don't know all the details, but at least that's where it seemed like the disease first spread. And there are dead people throughout the facility as the the virus has overtaken them. And Starkey gets bad news in a couple different places where we we find out from a man who comes in that this virus is highly communicable, 99.4%, I think he says, something around that. And um, that one of the other scientists who's involved with the project has already shot himself. as and he said he didn't leave a suicide note but starkey knows that reading the report about project blue is enough to know that that suicide note enough yep and we start to get uh, a little bit of the the angle of this came out of a lab and it was an accident but this came from whatever project starkey seems to be in charge of project blue yeah they knew about it they knew what it could do and that's why they had all those protocols in place protocols that didn't work properly. Right. So those are what seems to be the four main characters that we've pulled out of this section. Stu Redman, Franny Goldsmith, Starkey, and of course the late great Charles Campion, who started off our story <laughs> and is no longer with us. So we'll have to see how these characters progress through the rest of this story. But let's go back to what you were just hinting at about how this wasn't something supernatural or alien or even something in nature, but a project where things sort of have gotten out of control and, and and started to spread. And this reminds me that there are so many pieces in this section of the book, even through these first four chapters, where we're talking about how these little things that don't happen, whether they're coincidences or something that was caused by incompetence or unwillingness or just simple forgetness causes things to fall apart. And the first place we see that is with Charles Campion. The reason he's able to escape the base is because the emergency doors don't shut like they're supposed to. We, we, we see that with Campion and then we learn about it from Starkey is that 
they didn't close as quick as they did. I think it was like 40 seconds later and, and the, the, the doors would have shut and he would have been stuck and he wouldn't have been able to escape. But between that and then the inattentive guards at the base's exit and entrance, Campion's able to escape. And that's what starts this, this virus spreading. And that's not the only sort of thing that's brought up in this section. We're also told about the factories in our net and how through these series of coincidences, the factories, the calculator factory and the, the fire cal- the, there's a fire at a, uh, at a plant, all these things add up and his mom getting breast cancer all lead to Stu not being able to go to college, mm-hmm. not being able to get a good, good job. Then he gets a job at a factory and then his hours get laid off. And then all of a sudden, this is why he's sitting in the gas station drinking during the day, but that's able to stop him from, from blowing up. But then it also exposes him to this virus. And then finally, we learned that Franny's pregnant because even though she's on birth control, there must have been some sort of mistake. Either she forgot to take the pill when she should have and then forgot that she forgot, or maybe somebody wasn't, wasn't paying attention at the quality control at the birth control factory and screwed it up. So it's all these little things that add up that starts this whole story on its on its way yeah um so regarding the emergency doors at the army base like yes this is an example of things falling apart but it's also an example of like extreme selfishness i can't believe that campion did not get the training he needed Mm. to understand the place where he was working the the type of thing that the the base was working on and the reason for all of these security protocols and that, you know, had he followed his training and followed the guidelines and stayed in place, he might have gotten sick and died just like he ended up doing anyway, but it would have started and stopped there. That's why those things were there. But his instinct, his first thought was, um, I need to dodge all of the regulations and protocols. I need to escape from this place because I don't want to die. And it just drives me a little crazy that this one person's selfishness combined with things falling apart and, you know, like the, the protocols and the, the emergency doors and the, the guards posted at the entrance and exit to the base. All these things worked together in the perfect storm of the disease escaping and getting out into the world. And, and this is something that it doesn't date the story, but this seems very much a product of the late 70s. When the whole country sort of in a malaise, when things are not the way that people expected them to be, when things in America seem to be getting more run down. Like when I think of this time when this book came out, that's sort of like the mood of America, right? That that jobs are being offshored, that factories are closing down, that people are making mistakes and, and, and leading somewhere. And this really sort of fits the 70s piece as opposed mm. to what I think of as the 90s when there's sort of this great economic expansion and and people had the feeling like America was on the rise that they didn't necessarily in the 70s. And I wonder if that's just something too big for King to change here. Yes. Um, that that whole things falling apart piece that, that we're calling this. Uh, so that's one thing that sort of dates the book. But um, yeah, I, it's, it's a theme that I want to sort of see if it tracks throughout the rest of the story because it, it seemed very pertinent here in these first four chapters there seemed to be a lot of it yeah and you know regarding the the factories in our net and Stu's personal string of, of of tragedy it's also a very unfortunately typical story of 
rural small towns mm. like there's often just a single industry or very few industries that support the economy of that place and if something shifts in the world that that industry no longer makes sense or can't continue then whole towns just kind of fizzle yeah and it sounds like our net fell to that type of thing so it's not unique but it is something that is relatable and it's also something that is outside you know the scope of a single person or a single town but it is one of the things that contributed to Stu's current lot in life so it's it's important to to understand that again this is also some baseline table setting that uh that King's doing here he's letting us know what normal life is for these characters all right, so I'm not sure how much of this there's going to be throughout this book, but there are Dark Tower thinnies that we found so far. Just a reminder, when this story was first published, none of the Dark Tower novels had been published yet. King had written The Gunslinger, but it had not been formally published yet. And even by 1990, when the uncut version of this was put out, only The Gunslinger and... The Drawing of the Three. The drawing of the three had actually been published. So um, there will be Dark Tower Thinnies. We can't promise that there will be in every episode of this book, but let's talk about the ones we did find in this section. And also just to add on to what you, you just said, even though he had published two of the Dark Tower books by the time he redid this version of, of The Stand, I don't think King had come to realize and certainly hadn't decided that the dark tower was his jupiter mm. like the dark tower had not yet gained enough mass to start drawing all of his other stories and characters and worlds into itself so i think that anything he's we find are going to be sort of like special treats mm. in this book there's the one big one we're not going to talk about that yet <laughs> but we'll get to them and we'll cover them as we do but i did find one that I have to assume was intentional. Okay. And this is, you see in a printout that Starkey is looking at about Project Blue, that the contagion had escaped exactly on June 13th, 1990, at 2.37 and 16 seconds p.m., right? Okay. So in one of the ways that that is written out in the book, it's, 06 colon 13 colon 90 colon 02 colon 37 colon 16. If you add up all those numbers, you get 19 colon 19. Wow. I win. I win Dark Tower Thinnies right there. <laughs> I do think that that's a winner, yes. <laughs> I mean, did King need to make it June 13th in 1990? Probably not. But since he was changing the year that the story takes place to 1990, he just changed the month and date enough to get 19, right? Yep. Did he did he do this on purpose? You got to think so, right? Or was this one of those random like I keep seeing 19 in my work too often. I think it's a special number to me and I'll just keep doing that. I don't know. I don't know, definite thinny though. Yep. So one of the epigraphs to the first section is by the poet named Edward Dorn. Michael Dorn's brother, right? <laughs> he just didn't play a Klingon ever. <laughs> nope. And the quote is, we need help, the poet reckoned. And this line is from an epic poem called, 
wait for it, Jay. The gunslinger. What? So I don't know how we missed this, but supposedly that I, I read somewhere on the internet that uh, King is a big fan of Edward Dorn's The Gunslinger, and it is the reason that he called the first book The Gunslinger, because he had this epic poem in mind. Wow. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it too. So it's right there in the first uh, first few pages of this book. I think you win Dark Tower Thinnies on that one. Maybe. I will say, we'll have to see how this plays out throughout the rest of the of this story, because I'm not sure if I totally understand this line. We need help, the poet reckoned. So we'll have to see what that means. Yes, indeed. All right. So here's a section where we talk about changes, how the stand complete and uncut edition has changed from the first edition. The way that I looked at it is these changes sort of fell into three different categories. And one is just sort of your everyday publishing changes. So um, this is basically changing the dates to bring this book up to date. And so those will be all the dates coming into the 90s, but then also changes to make things more relevant, right? Like you don't want to have dated things, uh, whatever sort of references are. So those make sort of sense. And this is the type of thing that that King's done before. Um, the other one is the big one, right? Story changes. So like what is different from a story perspective? And what's interesting about this section that we read, Jay, is that whole first chapter with Charles Campion is all new. Hmm. None of that was in the first book. So we, the book starts with Stu Redman at the gas station and the car coming, and we don't learn about who this person is and where he came from and how he escaped the base. Like, that's all a mystery to us. We don't ever get that starting piece. It's just a random sick and dying guy crashing into a gas station. Yeah. And we learn a little bit about it in chapter four about some of it, but like, we don't get to see that. And I was trying to figure out why would King made, make this change. And I think from an enriching standpoint, one of the reasons he does this is because as a storyteller, unlike in real life, you can tell a story from beginning, middle, and end, and you can create your beginning. And even though in the original version of starting with the Stu Redman, you're sort of beginning with what might be a, an interesting character. I think King wanted to go back so that readers could see, hey, here's how it started. And here's why this is important, that Patient Zero is not just a dead guy at a gas station. Mm. Patient Zero has feelings and motivations. He's trying to save his family. He's trying to get away. He's scared. And these are the types of things he's doing. And to some extent, like you said before, he's selfish. And it's because of all this that this is what caused the the flu to escape that base. And so I think that, that does enrich the story in some ways. I don't know what you think about that. I think it does. Um, I think in some ways it also sort of, I don't mean this in a negative way, but it it simplifies the story. Like mm. I, I think there's something to be said for stories that bring us into the middle of the action. And sometimes that's done for effect, you know, like James Bond movies always start with an action scene because we know who James Bond is. That's so we're we're able to just sort of leap into the action by his side. But I think a story can be told in a more sophisticated way because you're sort of left to catch up with what's going on. Why? Why am I in this scene? Hmm. Whereas if you're instead you're it could be seen as more of a holding our hand and leading us through like let let me back up a couple of steps and introduce you to this campion guy and 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 set the stage that way um i don't think it in this case it 
it brings the story down in, in sophistication. Um, and it certainly makes it easier to understand what's going on, but I don't know that it's, it was necessary, but maybe King felt like expanding on this character, giving us a few more pages of, of his thoughts and motivations, uh, would be helpful. I guess I can kind of take it or leave it, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm biased because I sort of, now that I've, I've read that and I know everything that, that there is to know from those <laughs> extra pages, I can sort of in hindsight, look back and say, I didn't really need that, but um, it's hard. I, I can't know it and not know it and, yeah. and, and, and partially say which is better. Right. But I don't mind it. Fair enough. The other type of change that King likes to do is what I'm calling futzing changes, where he's just like futzing around with the story just to do it. Mm. Um, and there's so many weird ones, Jay. Like there's times he changes things from like Pepsi to Coke. Um, even in the dedication, I think he changes a colon to a dash and, and, and how the line break occurs. And Stu gets described as one time as an old time tough. And in the version we're reading, it's old time tough. And all three words of those are capitalized. And in the mm -hmm. original, it's old dash, no, old hyphen time. Time is not capitalized. Tough and tough is not capitalized. It's like, why'd you change that? Why'd you take out a hyphen? Why'd you change the capitalization? <laughs> like, what are you doing here, King? He's futzing. Yeah, he's just futzing around like, hey, I can move things as long as I'm in here. Why not just uh, do that? And, you know, we've seen this before. Um, we talked a little bit about how Salem's Lots got those changes. If you've ever re read Stephen King's on writing, which if you haven't, I suggest you do. You can see him take a manuscript page and show how he's making changes. But it's just futzing around. And obviously, we would get way into the weeds if we uh, ever got into all of those. But it's just sort of interesting to see how he edits things. Yeah. And the fact that he took the time to make this level of change is yeah. it, it's it shows how much he dedicated himself to bringing this book into its new version. It it wasn't just pasting those four hundred pages yeah. where where they fit and republish. You know, right. it, this was practically a whole rewrite in yep. some ways. He looked at everything. Yeah, yeah. Sean, we've got a new section we're introducing for the stand. All right. Yucking it up. Blah. Jay, can you give me an idea of what this section is going to entail? <laughs> As if the title wasn't enough? <laughs> it's going to be the section in which we talk about the puke-worthy moments that are just like super gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how much, how much more eloquent I can be. Um, for example, one of the things that we see is... There's a dead person in the army base who has died with his face in a bowl of soup. Mm. And when Starkey keeps looking at that monitor that shows the cafeteria and the dead guy with his face in the soup, all he keeps thinking is, oh, man, basically that guy is going to have his face in the soup till the end of time. Like, like, would I want to be the guy who died with my face in the soup? And so... This one isn't particularly gross, but it's kind of just like, I mean, it's gross in that when you get your face in a bowl of soup, it's just a mess, but, <laughs> but that, that's an example. So there are a lot of memorable moments in this book that I think are going to stick out, and it's that vivid imagery that gets us. Um, another one is when Franny bites her tongue um, mm. as she comes up behind Jess and, and sort of startles him. and when. He turns around, she falls down, and 
bites down on her tongue and there's just blood everywhere and it continues to bleed for a while and yeah. she ends up she ends up she like this isn't very ladylike but she ends up spitting and there's just this glob of blood that comes out as she spits it's 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 very gross mm. and then the last one that i thought of in this section jay is not quite as reminiscent as the pie eating scene in stand by me slash the body <laughs> but later on in or in the first chapter when Charles Campion is dying and the men get a whiff of him. They all start throwing up. And the one image that gets me is the guy who's throwing up and he sort of has his finger lifted up as he tries to cover his mouth with his hand and his pinkies <laughs> raised he's classy. in the air. Yeah, he's like drinking a cup of tea, like that Kermit the Frog gif. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're going to vomit, you got to vomit with class. <laughs> Jay, I look forward to more gross outs in the future. I do too. <laughs> All right, so just a reminder as we continue the show that we are thanking our patrons for their support of the show and a reminder that if you are a patron, you get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. So, Sean, let's get into the most fun part of our episode, fun stuff. Woohoo! <laughs> I'll kick us off when uh, one of Stu's gas station drinking buddies wakes up the, the next morning and he's not feeling so great. He's thinking about whether or not he needs to dress up. And the line that he says to himself is he considered tucking his shirt into his pants, decided the president probably wouldn't be stopping by that day and shuffled out into the kitchen in his sock feet. <laughs> I just like that, that consideration. It's like the cutoff for him to, look nice is whether or not the president is going to be visiting his house yeah i gotta get that into my own rotation so it's like do i need to dress up today is the president coming by nah it could happen sweatpants it is <laughs> one of the things that i found fun in this section and i think is going to be important throughout the book is king's use of music as a touchstone oh yeah so at the beginning of Book one, he has three songs as uh, epigraph. One is Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen. Mm -hmm. One is The Fish Cheer by Country Joe and the Fish. And the third one is one that sticks with me specifically because of the Stand miniseries, and that is Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. And I want to believe that that song cue was used to great effect in the Stand miniseries as sort of that foreboding death hanging over everything probably i don't remember <laughs> yeah the the other song cue that i remember and i think it's right from the beginning i, I think i sort of remember from one of the franny scenes is um don't dream it's over by crowded house hmm. that song's used in the in the mini series but not referenced here yet ah another fun stuff that i wanted to talk about was this delicious foreshadowing that king throws into uh I think it's chapter one. Somebody in the gas station bumps a case of maps mm. and scatters Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona every which way. Definite foreshadowing. Definite foreshadowing. To get back to the music, Jay, there are two more songs that are referenced in the epigraph to the, I believe it's the Captain Tripp section. And one is a song by the Silvers called Boogie Fever, which, again, the fever is a direct analogy to the flu i believe but that was definitely top of the charts in 1990 
<laughs> yeah, I know. That's the one thing. It didn't seem like a lot of the song choices were, were changed. King's a classic rock guy through and through. Yep. Uh, the other one was one I couldn't find on Google very easily, Jay. It's a song called Baby Can You Dig Your Man by somebody named Larry Underwood. But I couldn't seem to find anything on Billboard about that song. So maybe mm. we'll learn more about it in a later section. Yeah, I think we, we might. So the last thing I had on my list of fun stuff was King's unnecessary but exquisite use of motherfucker. <laughs> In uh, his one of his forewords, he says, consider the Great Wall of China, if you will. One stone at a time, man. That's all. One stone at a time. But I've read you can see that motherfucker from space without a telescope. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, doesn't get better than that. Maybe a bit gratuitous there, but I'll allow it. <laughs> All right, Jay. Well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thank you. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand, Book 1, Chapters 5 through 15. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. first one we meet is Stu redmond nope no it's charles campion in the prologue oh <laughs> i'm waiting for you to finish your sound effects <laughs> sound effect here of some sort pew, pew, pew.